1: Strange Familiars. How are you this evening, Allison?
2: I'm doing well.
1: Are you excited about tonight's show?
2: I am. This is like when people come out and they give their speech and they're like, you're not listening. I want to hear more energy. (laughs) And I'm always like, I can't do it.
1: (laughs) Poor Hermit gets blown to bits by dynamite.
2: Not only that, it also involves magical thinking, the KKK. Blacksmiths. Incendiary devices. It's kind of like Every trope from a cartoon mixed with every trope from, like, a murder podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is another story I stumbled on by accident. I forget what I was looking for. Probably another hermit. I don't know. And I found this story, and I I just went down the rabbit hole with it. I remember getting very excited and telling you, Allison, we have to do an episode on this. This is really interesting. It's the story of a poor hermit blacksmith who gets blown up by dynamite. There's a lot of... Uh, Intrigue and a uh, possible conspiracy.
2: Some wicker man kind of concepts going on here too. I think.
1: Yeah. And
2: it's all happening in the place that becomes the area where Neverland Ranch is built, which I think was like the thing that when I read that I was like, ew. It's like layers of icky history on top of each other.
1: Yeah, that was. Uh, you just found that today as yeah, we were doing our like, last bit of research. <laughs> Before we get into tonight's story, I want to mention about the Strange Familiars High Strangeness Tour T-shirts. They are still at the printers. It's a special order and a very large amount of T-shirts and hoodies. They are still at the printers, but he's working on them actually right now. He's working on them this week. We will get them soon, and we will send them out. I've had some people asking about them. If I just want to let everybody know.
2: They're on their way. They're
1: on the way. It's just taking a little bit longer because it's such a big order, and it is a – I mean, come on. It's a really awesome design. (laughs) But, no, the printing is on every side of the shirt. Yeah, there's four spots. Yeah, four places of printing with multiple colors of ink. It's just a lot more than our usual order. So it's taken a little while, but they're on their way. We promise we'll get them to you as soon as they come to us. We'll start mailing them out.
2: Yeah, we don't sit on things like that. Tim is absolutely the fastest shipper. I like, if he doesn't have something in the mail, like within an hour or two of someone ordering, he gets really upset. <laughs> I'm always like, it'll, people know it'll wait a day. And then Tim's like, no, no, no. <laughs> we'll get them out fast. Plus, we don't really have that much room in our house to have that many boxes. So I will want to clear them out.
1: Yeah. So we will get those shipped out ASAP. Sorry for the wait, everybody, but I think it'll be worth the wait. Another piece of business, Allison. We did that giveaway of the Witch Cloud book in the original art a few mm-hmm. weeks back. I forgot to mention the winner. The winner was Natasha from Canada. I think both of the drawings we've done, people from Canada have won Yay, each time. for our so, Canadian friends. Yeah. So thanks, Natasha. Thanks, everybody, for taking part in that. And congratulations, Natasha. I saw she put a picture up of the artwork and the books. She's gotten it by now. So I hope you're enjoying that. Thanks, everybody, for taking part in that. The Witch Cloud, of course, is available with the book by itself, or with the book and the download from both our Bandcamp site, stonebreast.bandcamp.com, and from our Etsy shop. Shop name is Lost Grave. If you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff will come up. If you just want the book, the book by itself is available on Amazon as well. Thanks, everybody, for taking part in that giveaway. I guess we'll do another one down the road.
2: They're fun to do. That is fun to do. I'm going to enter next time. Are you- I mean, because we make the rules, we don't have any provisions about who can win, right? I mean, if I happen to win arbitrarily,
1: no, I, I would not. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, no, yeah, no, exactly. no one associated with the show can win. I think so. Bigfoot. I think win? Chad. I think Chad entered. Yeah, no. Bigfoot can always win. Bigfoot is always the winner. I think Chad might have sort of entered the last one, like because you know you enter by commenting uh-huh. and, and tagging someone else. I think he did that on the last drawing. I was like. I hope you know Chad. I mean, it was nice of him to do because it sort of promotes the giveaway. I was like, I hope you know if I, if I choose your name. Like we can't choose yeah, we our can't, friends. we can't give it to you. But it was nice of him to do that anyway.
2: So your foot is feeling well enough that you? I saw you and Chad went out and about on one of your adventures the other night?
1: Yes, we did. We found a really, really cool place. We recorded there. Didn't hear any sounds ourselves or anything, but we found this really, really interesting nature preserve in Lancaster County that reminds me of Toad Road. If you could still drive on Toad Road, which you can't, I did record, and I'll we'll have to go through and see if uh, that might end up becoming a, uh, a patron episode.
2: Is it part of the Lancaster Conservancy?
1: They do own it. Yes, oh,
2: they I is. think. Uh, Here is a shout out to the Lancaster Conservancy who are just.
1: Fantastic
2: group. Saving a lot of land in Lancaster and York
1: County. And York counties, yeah. They have really stepped it up. Amazing group.
2: And saved the the most beautiful spots in the counties from development, which is Mm -hmm. sort of the nature of this area is to overdevelop. And they've really saved the most precious spots. Absolutely. Fantastic group. So let's hear about this hermit.
1: At 3 a.m. on December 16th, 1923, a dynamite blast rocked the town of Los Olivos, California, near Santa Barbara. The dynamite was placed under the bed of a hermit blacksmith named J.J. McGuire. McGuire died later that day. This is from the Los Angeles Times, December 17th, 1923. Blast is fatal to old man.
2: The small community of Los Olivos, about 30 miles from here, was thrown into a state of excitement this morning following a mysterious explosion that fatally injured J.J. J. McGuire, 75 years of age, blacksmith in his small home. The blasts occurred about 3 a.m., and the victim died later this afternoon. Investigation by Sheriff Ross revealed the fact that the explosion was caused by dynamite, which had evidently been placed under the old man's bed while he slept. While several theories have been advanced by authorities as to the probable motive for the explosion, no arrests have been made at a late hour tonight and Sheriff Ross would not predict whether he expected early arrests. McGuire figured in the news recently when postmaster W. W. Jones of Los Alamos had him arrested about a month and a half ago on a complaint charging assault with intent to kill. It was asserted that McGuire threatened Jones with a pistol. At the hearing on the charge, it was reduced to disturbing the peace, and McGuire was sentenced to 30 days in jail. He was released from jail a few days ago. While McGuire, the sole blacksmith in the village of about 500 persons, was in jail, it is said another blacksmith shop was set up, and McGuire, according to officers, protested against the invasion of a rival firm. The dead man had been a, res- a resident in the small village for many years, and it is said to have a large number of friends there.
1: John J. McGuire was born about 1848 in New York. His mother was from New York. His father was Canadian. And he arrived in Los Olivos, California in 1917. This is from the Los Angeles Times, December 31st, 1923.
2: This is entitled Typical Village. It is a typical little country village, this townlet of Los Alamos. One long, draggling main street, its business buildings brave in their array of false fronts, that hark back to olden mining camps. Their type is familiar to any film fan. Los Olivos once had aspirations. It was destined in the minds of its promoters to be an important link in the chain of towns which paralleled the paved highway up and down the coast. But somehow the highway missed it by five miles or more. It sits in its loneliness, curled in the midst of a valley through which but dirt roads traverse. One late afternoon, six years ago, A tired figure trudged down that dusty road. Seventy years old he was, a wandering tinsmith. He sharpened knives and shears. He plied his simple trade up and down the broad length of the land, and always he had searched for something that he could not find. Olden inhabitants say Maguire, for it was Maguire, carried his earthly possessions in a bindle on his back. But he came to Los Alamos on foot, and apparently without money. He liked its rustic city, and he stayed. One principal figure in the village he met shortly after his arrival was Taylor Downs. Downs had a son, W.H. Downs, the postmaster, and his daughter had married Dallas D. Davis, a leading merchant. McGuire saw a chance to start a blacksmith shop. He rented a vacant building and installed a forge. Business came his way, and he prospered. He built a little shack behind the shop, and there he lived. He hadn't been there long before trouble started, and it began in the usual inconsequential manner from which many of our greatest tragedies have sprung. It seems the blacksmith shop had an iron roof, corrugated. Between it and the Downs store was a vacant lot, and their children, principally those of the Downs family, used to gather to play their childish games. One day, one of them discovered that rocks thrown on the iron roof of the shop made a wonderful clatter as they rolled down. Rocks were plentiful, and they seized avidly upon the new amusement. But inside the shop, the aged blacksmith would be shoeing horses. The animals would jump when the rocks banged on the roof, and several times they knocked him down and kicked him. He protested to the kids. They thoughtlessly continued in their game, perhaps seeking only to tease. McGuire carried his objections to Downs, but somehow the children didn't stop, and thus bad blood was mixed. Old settlers say that in those pre-Prohibition days, McGuire liked his little drop at times, and in those moments... Of stimulated existence, he became querulous and quarrelsome, and with the stone-throwing incident as a foundation, bit by bit, a whole-souled feud was built. Incomplete in this history of the early days, one learns that McGuire was arrested three or four times on some petty charge. He paid his fines and went back to his horseshoes and plowshares. They said he was kind to children, that he seemed peaceably inclined and got along nicely with everyone who treated him civilly. He made a wide acquaintance and not a few friends. Then an old feud grows. Six weeks ago, the feud had waxed exceedingly great of late. Maguire was hated and cordially hated throughout the clan of Downs. He was a disgrace to the village, they said. He ought to be got rid of. They vaguely told of threats against the peace and dignity of numerous village burghers which he had said to have made, threats which today dwindle into nothing but village gossip. But one afternoon, Maguire, for some purpose still unknown, went into Downs' store. Downs said he produced a gun and threatened to kill him. Several relatives of Downs came in, and they called the constable. The constable arrested McGuire, but he didn't find a gun. Yet on the testimony of Downs, McGuire was held to a higher court to answer to a charge of assault with intent to murder. In default of $2,000 bond, he was taken to Santa Barbara and thrown in jail. District Attorney Ward, in going over the case, soon discovered that he didn't have enough evidence to convict McGuire, no one, it seemed, but Downs had seen McGuire with a gun, and the old man didn't have it on his person half an hour later when he was arrested. Downs called in, said he didn't care whether McGuire was prosecuted or not, but the main thing was to get him out of Los Alados. McGuire, brought before the court, pleaded guilty to petty assault, and was sent to jail for 30 days. That month, he pottered around the jail yard tending flowers and cleaning up a bit. The jailer said he was but a harmless, pleasant old man with a kind word for everyone— that as a village menace he was a good blacksmith. (laughs) While he was away into the vacant lot next to his shack, someone went, probably at night, and they dug a trench across the lot, tunneled under a fence, and then under McGuire's little shack, and directly under the place where his bed was located, they dug a hole, and in it placed a gunny sack filled with blasting dynamite. It had been capped. The fuse was attached and laid at the trench bottom. The whole thing then was covered up with the exception of the tiny fuse end in the lot. McGuire's sentence expired. He returned to his shop and shack, and three nights later at midnight, when all the village was asleep, when clouds hung low over a new moon, someone, and the district attorney slowly but surely is narrowing the noose around that someone, touched that fuse end with a match of glowing coal.
1: Yeah. We're going to get back to these threats and this controversy between McGuire and Downs and these other folks, but I wanted to read that article because I think it establishes that he wasn't this violent, crazy blacksmith. Mm-hmm. He seems to have been well-liked in the community.
2: If even the people that are jailing you think you're a pleasant old man. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have to say that because he was in jail in California at this time, This, I mean, this is a fun way to spend an afternoon if you want to go online. The, all of this is free to look at. You can look at the... The like all the intake photos for people when they were arrested. Oh yeah. And so we looked for him because we thought with a they kind of allude to a prior history of sort of transience and probably petty crimes. And so we thought maybe we could find him. And we found someone. His name is common enough that I wasn't absolutely sure that his name is
1: common enough where there's another John McGuire who's a blacksmith in California. Yeah. Yeah. So it was getting
2: really confusing. So I didn't want to like say conclusively this is the guy. There's there are some pictures of a guy that might be him. We didn't decide to include that, but. I tell you what, it was a lot of fun to just look at these photos of people who were in jail in the 20s. (laughs) Yeah, it is
1: neat. Here's another article that talks about the troubles between Downs and McGuire. This is from the Modesto Bee. That's a nice name for a newspaper. I
2: know. I love newspapers like that.
1: (laughs) The Modesto Bee, from the 27th of October, 1923. Postmaster's life threatened by man. Santa Barbara, California, October 27th. After terrorizing W.H. Downs, Los Olivas postmaster, and Mrs. Downs, and holding possession of the post office and general store in Los Olivos for some time, J.J. J. McGuire, blacksmith, was jailed at that place today. Armed with a revolver, McGuire threatened to kill him, Downs alleges. The constable disarmed McGuire and arrested him. The cause of the trouble between the two men is unknown here. So we have a different perspective in that article, that earlier article. I tend to go with the article you read. That rings true. And if you think about trying to be a blacksmith and having a corrugated metal roof. Yeah. <laughs> and Even kids, the rain would be annoying to a horse. Kids keep throwing rocks up there and making the horses jump. I mean, that's not only frustrating, but dangerous.
2: You yeah, know? can get kicked, right? Yeah.
1: So I feel like he went to Downs and Downs is already connected in community. And it's who do you think you are?
2: hmm
1: Now, it says he had a revolver, but the revolver was never found in mm-hmm. these charges. It's Down's words against his, basically. hmm
2: I know we have the luxury of hindsight, but when you read that article and it says, arrest will be made soon, they're narrowing in on who it is. When there's literally a fuse going from under your bed where you were blown up to your neighbor's house. Right.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm, I'm not a detective. And I know I have the luxury of hindsight, but
1: <laughs> I think we stumbled onto an old time conspiracy that's worthy of a plot from Deadwood. Here, honestly, mm-hmm. I really do. This this feels like a really insidious plot, and I think justice was not done, as we shall see. So McGuire was sentenced to thirty days in late October, nineteen twenty three, for whatever happened there. He was back in Los Alamos by late November or December of nineteen twenty three. And by December 16th, he's dead. We were doing the math and we were trying to figure out and we thought, well, he couldn't have been back for more than a few days. Mm-hmm. He wasn't back, according to the one article we read, for more than, what was it?
2: It was less than three days, wasn't it? Like, it was like, like the that. second or third It must yeah. have been the very night they knew he was back conclusively. Yeah. I don't understand how, though, being so aggravated with a neighbor that the only thought is to kill him. Unless you think that, his station as li in life is such that he doesn't deserve the same kind of respect that other people do you know i think that's often the case with hermits or i mean we've seen this in our own town we had for a while we live in a small town but there was a person who was homeless and was living on a bench in the square of our town mm-hmm. the mayor decided that he would just eliminate the bench that he was sleeping on so he wouldn't be there and, and in fact put up a sign that said not to quote feed the bum it was one of the most despicable things I've seen happen in our town, and we've had a lot of despicable things happen here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's that idea that people who of a quote-unquote lower station in life do not deserve the same respect as other people. They're expendable. They're something to be gotten rid of. They're an embarrassment.
1: And a lot of small towns, even today, but especially back in earlier times, in earlier parts of history, there was this sort of inflated sense of importance of, you know, the mayor And the mm-hmm. people with station in the towns They really thought they were somebody mm-hmm. So you're a mayor of a little town <laughs> yeah. Take your stupid sign down Yeah, You know, you're not important You're no more important than the homeless guy that's sleeping on that bench You may think you are, but you're not You're not And I think that's was happening in this town I really do I think these people thought they were the boss They were the bosses of the town And they could do what they wanted So there was a murder inquiry into McGuire's death. This is from the Los Angeles Times, again, December 31st, 1923.
2: Indictments may reveal the dynamite murder plot. Grand jury inquiry may include leading citizens in charges on mysterious death. With indictments charging first-degree murder against several leading citizens of the little town of Los Alamos looming as the result of a grand jury inquiry into the recent slayings of John J. McGuire... Agent Blacksmith, District Attorney Clarence C. Ward and other investigators have unearthed within a Little Valley community one of the strangest and most puzzling enigmas within the annals of the county. McGuire, asleep in a shack, was blown to bits two weeks ago in the midnight explosion of a gunny sack full of dynamite, which through means of a cunningly constructed tunnel had been placed beneath the floor of his crude home. Evidence circumstantial. As a result of the killing, there has been brought to the District Attorney and other investigators... Evidence so circumstantial as to physical facts and so discrepant to testimony as apparently to indicate that at least one prominent faction among the villagers had foreknowledge of the apparently planned murder, and which assigned several possible motives for the act. Under one of these possibilities, the public would be asked to believe that a village desirous of ridding itself of a citizen whom the villagers did not like and who had been a party throughout a number of years to considerable turmoil would calmly plan his death in a blast which, it was hoped, would obliterate all conclusions other than that of suicide, and which would charge instead the most sinister of plots to the dead man. Under another theory, McGuire would portray the role of the man who knew too much, who was killed because dead men tell no tales. The blast shook the village to its roots. McGuire's shack dissolved in a cloud of smoke. Bits of splintered wood flung high in the air, and on them were impaled scattered shreds of bedding, They heard the blast for several miles around the country, but it wasn't heard within the village. Testimony shows that no villagers left their homes that night. No one investigated. Testimony shows that W.H. Downs had left ostensibly for Huntington Park that very morning, but landed instead in the Mission Hotel in Hollywood. Taylor Downs, his father, who generally slept in the store next door, was at a friend's house. So was Downs' younger daughter. No one, in fact, was in the Downs domicile on that night. Convenient. That does seem convenient. I mean, that almost completely exonerates them right from the (laughs) (laughs) get-go. It so happened that in the neighborhood was a telephone construction gang. Members of this, it was, who searched out the scene of the explosion, who removed the mangled but still living body of the 76-year-old man, who heard his words of accusation against Downs and against Another Los Olvas businessman who rushed him to a hospital just in time to have him die. Next day came the aftermath. Sheriff James Ross, the district attorney, his assistant Atwell Westwick, coroner E. C. Dodge and special investigator Lester De Grandchamp, and county jailer George Downing, and a host of newspaper men visited the Little Valley town. They found, according to one inquirer, two factions there. One stood on the street, corners and talked loudly, noisily and said, a mean old troublemaker. Undoubtedly, he was preparing a bomb to destroy some of us when it exploded and brought him to a deserved end. The other groups were less noisy, more determined, and with less of the obvious in their appeal for the stranger's credulity. It was a foul, cowardly murder, a blot on the name of Las Olivas, which must be erased, was their verdict. The sheriff found the trench and the tunnel. He found a shovel with traces of fresh dirt on it, He found the shredded bits of gunny sacking and the tattered papers in which the dynamite was wrapped. He found the ash remnants of the fuse line, and then came the questioning. Among the Downs faction, they found loud-voiced denials of any knowledge of the affair. They were not afraid of an investigation. They invited it. Downs and his immediate family were brought to Santa Barbara and grilled mercilessly. They didn't break down. W.H. Downs pointed to his absence from the city. He had gone to Huntington Park to buy a new place so he could leave Los Alamos to McGuire, he said. But the sheriff found that on the morning of the explosion, two friends of Downs had gone to McGuire and offered to buy him out, and that McGuire had willingly consented to sell, and that Downs had left there shortly afterward. Why, the district attorney asked, did Downs, knowing that McGuire was willing to sell out and get out, leave for Huntington Park to buy a new place and leave Los Olivos so that he need not hear of McGuire? And again, Downs is reported to have said in answer to a direct inquiry as to his knowledge of the killing, I don't know, and I don't want to know. And from other members of the group came similar denials and similar evasions. Yet out of it all, the district attorney has garnered enough to make this statement. I have enough evidence to warrant a grand jury investigation into this affair. I have enough evidence to issue charges against certain persons. But it is my belief that more are implicated in the killing, and when I prosecute one person for that crime, I want to prosecute everyone who participated in it, either directly or indirectly. We will make arrests in due time. From all the various bits of evidence, these facts stand out. That McGuire was disliked by Downs and his family. That they asked the district attorney to prefer any charges against McGuire, that he might be kept away from Los Olivos for some reason as yet not known And that according to the district attorney, they said they would do anything to get him away from the village, and that friends of McGuire quote him as being willing and ready to sell out at any time anyone wanted to buy. That assertions that the blacksmith had made numerous threats against citizens have not been verified. Instead, officials find in tracing them that the reports of these threats have emanated only from one man, that the killing was deliberately conceived, planned and executed in the most diabolical of fashion, and arranged in such a way that it had not been for the finger of fate the hut and its locale would have been so thoroughly devastated that a thorough investigation would have not been possible. Another aftermath of the explosion comes in the reported interest of federal authorities in the vicinity of Los Olivos. There have been rumors of gigantic rum-running episodes of young girls and women who mysteriously disappear from their homes and who are taken somewhere for a period before they find their way to brothels, of a dope traffic, and of the other businesses of the twilight world. Should these suspicions have a ground upon which federal officers may develop a case, the revelation might possibly yield another motive for McGuire's demise. Just one more commentary. McGuire's last act was to contribute a small amount of his meager savings to a Christmas cheer fund for the children of the village. He wasn't solicited by the committee who had the fund in charge. He sought them out.
1: Important note there. Not the actions of of a mean, old, vindictive blacksmith who hated this town.
2: Yeah, I think so. That to me that was really important evidence yeah. of the, like a, as to his character.
1: Another thing that that struck me that seemed very deadwood about this story was the person standing on the street Declaring loudly how nobody liked this guy, nobody liked this guy. You know, reporters come around. They there's somebody conveniently standing on the street, <laughs> announcing, "No one liked this guy. Uh, he 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 was going to kill any some people anyway. He yeah, didn't he have was any friends on here. Killing all of us. It's yeah.
2: glad that happened to him in the process of him trying to kill all yeah, of us. Yeah,
1: it sounds like a plant. They planted somebody on the street to just say this stuff while the reporters were there and make it seem like the whole community was against this blacksmith. It stinks.
2: Also, I thought it was particularly awful. I, I just assumed that he died in the blast, but the fact that he didn't die till shortly after that mm-hmm. and that no one in the town investigated an explosion like that.
1: Yeah. He named Downs, by the way, before he died. I don't think that was in that article. It's in some of the articles. We didn't read every article we found on this. We, it would be a nine episode series if we read every article. But uh, one of the articles explicitly states that before he died, he named Downs. He said Downs did this.
2: I think anybody with a third grade detective education would probably be able to figure that one out on its own. Yeah. I do like also that they're the, the prosecutor is insinuating that there might be other other business going on in town that maybe he was privy to.
1: Mm, yeah,
2: I have to say that after we did a bunch of this research, I just found a, a little book on like the history of, of Los Olivos and the major players uh, in the accusations against him were still found with their families in the book. And there was no mention of this, what I no. would say is some um, particular blight on the town.
1: In modern newspaper articles, mm-hmm. they mention the blacksmith shop being blown up by dynamite, but none of this murder stuff. You know how you say there's certain things in York that historians were told not to talk about?
2: Yes, I know that there are three major stories that uh, a historian, a friend of a friend was told not to write about.
1: As regards to York. Yeah, in regard to York. I think a similar thing has happened in Los Alamos. This is just not to be talked about.
2: Mm -hmm. I hate these stories where somebody thinks they're doing the right thing and they're absolutely not doing the right thing. And it's just like people rally around them and and somehow convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm.
1: This is from the Buffalo Times.
2: So somewhere like Buffalo, New York?
1: New York. This made it out of the state here. This is from May 8th, 1924. Oldest citizens draw lots to kill villager. Confess to dynamiting his home. Three leading citizens of Los Olivos held for murder of hated and feared recluse. Los Olivos, California, May 8th. It was a job for old folk, for old men edging toward the grave, into which they were to blast a superannuated neighbor. Such, according to confession and triple murder charge, was the decision of patriarchs of this little town when they assembled and conspired to annihilate the village smith hated and feared recluse, about whom had grown a dark medieval legend of menace. Three elders, leading citizens of Los Alamos, were awaiting trial at Santa Barbara for the death of J.J. J. McGuire, 75, in the dynamiting of his hermitage last December. The accused are W.F. Crawford, 70, and Taylor Down, 75, wealthy ranchers, and the latter's son, William H. Down, 52, postmaster. Startling Confession Arrests were made only recently when Harvey Stonebarger staggered the town by confessing, according to District Attorney Clarence Ward, that he and the trio facing trial had planned the death of McGuire following a lethal lottery in which many oldsters participated. He confirmed his story at the preliminary hearing, securing states' evidence immunity. Supporting testimony revealed a strange tale of village fury and repeated nocturnal debate by community leaders on how they might eliminate their execrated townsmen, whose gloomy eye they charged fell too often upon the women and children. The aged smithy had become a dread. He lived alone in a little hut at the edge of town, irascible, eccentric, fumed with the sulfurous glow of his forge. His roomy eyes blazed with evil portent, so the village gossip went. Threatened to kill. Women spoke of how McGuire had molested them using profanity and threats. Children whimpered of having been frightened. Some of these children, in turn, indulged that fearful nagging of those they mark for ogres, so like the harassment of witches in elder times. Attempts were made to persuade him to leave town. He, feeling himself the abused, would not go. On one occasion, according to residents, he threatened to kill Postmaster Downs and his family, flourishing a pistol. That got him 90 days in jail for disturbing the peace. Again, his smithy bellows hissed defiance. And to the knell of hammer on anvil, gossip fanned the civic fury anew. I love this. this the the uh, blacksmith metaphors here are awesome. With nothing to lay a legal finger upon, the town's patriarchs determined to sit in grim judgment upon him. The death lottery was called. The citizen, getting the fatal slip, was to shoot McGuire. So Stonebarger's confession ran. Young men were excluded. This was no time for hot adolescent passions but for the grave deliberation of senescence. But the very timors of age frustrated the lottery. The man elected told his wife, and she would not let him shoot. There was an interval of a month. A smaller number of elders, moved by a weird sense of sacrifice for the public good, lit the fuse of hatred. McGuire groaned a name as he lay dying in the debris of his shack, a clue which led to the recent arrests.
2: I like to think of that picture of all of them getting together. And in my mind, I, I imagine this very sort of, cartoonish uh, idea of all of them in robes in this very solemn picking of lots but i think it was more like we got to get rid of this guy are you in with a lot of pressure
1: who's gonna do it who's gonna do it
2: i also like the fact that this was a job for old men and one of them was nearly your age (laughs) nice thanks
1: Was it, oh, it was a different thing in 1924.
2: Yes, and there is a big difference between someone who's, I mean, was that a, like a nod to like not having someone who's like 18 or 19 have to live with that death for their whole I life? Think, I think it was. Or was it that they want it to be like a very serious, solemn thing where it wasn't someone with just like, yeah, I'll get it with like someone who had thought about it and and come to the realization that this was the right thing to do and not some sort of hot-headed way to... Hmm.
1: I took it as simply as like the older guys going like, "Well, let's. We not, have to take care of. Let's this. not put this on the younger men. We're going to do this, and we have less to lose."
2: Yeah, we also have um, the backing of the entire town and our exactly. our standing in it to, yeah. to help fall back on. But let's good. not
1: forget that when McGuire was in prison for this other charge, which I think was trumped up. I don't think it was.
2: It Real. just seemed kind of bogus that a half an hour later there would be no sign of your gun, and you live in a little shack, they couldn't find a gun somewhere. You yeah. wouldn't want it. You wouldn't just get rid of it.
1: I think he was railroaded into jail the first time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: His jailer said he was a nice guy. He was tending flowers in the, in the jail yard and every, got along well with everybody. Most of the people in the town said he was a nice guy. It was these town fathers, if you want to call them that, that seemed to have a problem with him. But let's not forget, while he was in jail, someone dug a trench... From the Downs property, underneath his shack, tunneled underneath his shack, put some dynamite right under where he slept, and ran that fuse back through that trench to Downs property.
2: That was the most elaborate suicide I've ever heard of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) The other thing I found interesting, and this happens so often like when we're doing research about things in our area, is that newspapers from far away have much better, more in-depth stories than the than the local papers do. Often, yeah. Yeah, and this is the case that the article has photos of the people involved, and it's much more... Uh, it's got a
1: photo of the blacksmith shop.
2: Yeah, and the, you just don't find that in the local papers.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got photos of Downs and Crawford, the younger Downs.
2: So it's another man in the town um, whose name is what Harvey Stonebarger, who under... After days and days of interrogation, finally kind of gives up the ghost and says, this is what happened. Yeah. And that's how the arrests come about.
1: Yeah, but I think amazingly, he recants his confession. Hmm. I wonder why that happened. (laughs) Because he lived in town with these guys and they told him he better recant his confession. I'm just supposing. I don't know. So we get to an arrest and a trial. Another really interesting thing about this, I didn't know this happened this early. This was one of the first uses of a lie detector in the state of California. I had no clue lie detectors were being used this early.
2: Yeah, in 1920s. And and this is also happening. It's so often that we'll do an article and then some huge trial is happening at the same time. And this is happening at the same time as the Leopold and Loeb trial.
1: You told me what this was earlier and I've already blanked. So explain (laughs) some more.
2: I think we actually even talked about it in relation to another. It was like a, a famous kidnapping case.
1: Yeah. Did we talk about it on the Lost Charlie Ross episode, maybe?
2: Yeah, because this is all happening like the same time as like Lindbergh, Lost Charlie mm-hmm. Ross, Leopold and Loeb. I think they are two university students who are, are charged with kidnapping a relative of one of them, and then they end up killing him. So this is happening all at the same time, and so we're reading these articles and we're trying to, suss out which murder trial is coming up in the paper, whether it's like the more famous one or this one. Right. This kind of takes a back seat, So we get to the trial and this is great because this is where our insanely perfect criminal justice system will weed out <laughs> who it is that has perpetrated the crime and justice will be served. So prepare for it. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. What paper?
2: This is from the Los Angeles Times. Well, this is from April when they're initially arrested. Oh, this
1: is when they're, in it. okay. So this yeah. is before the actual trial in April.
2: W.H. Downs, Taylor Downs, his father, and W.F. Crawford were arrested here tonight on charges of the murder of John J. McGuire, aged Los Olivos blacksmith who was dynamited while asleep in his shack on December 15th. The arrest followed a signed and sworn confession of complicity in the killing by Harvey Stonebarger, proprietor of the Los Olivos machine shop. The three men held are personal friends of Stonebarger, and all are prominent in the community. Mm Mm-hmm. Stone Barger's confession followed a six-day grilling of more than a score of men from Los Olivos, the inquisition in each case being directed from information furnished in tests made by Leonard Keeler's lie detector, borrowed from Chief Vollmer's police department for the occasion. In his confession, Stone Barger admitted that the killing of McGuire had been deliberately planned by a group of Los Olivos citizens as a means of getting rid of the aged horseshoer, McGuire, who was a constant drinker, had repeatedly enraged citizens of the community by violent actions and slanderous remarks. Attempts to have him sent to an insane asylum or convicted of a felony had failed, and the citizens, Barger said, felt that it was up to them to act. Stone Barger averred that W.H. Downs went to Santa Margarita several days before the murder, met his father there, and that the two returning to Los Olivos bought the dynamite with them. There were 12 sticks of the explosion and a long length of fuse. The sticks were divided into two parts— Six in each, and then with the fuse wrapped up in a gunny sack. On the morning of December 15th, Strumbarger said Downs gave him the dynamite to take to Crawford, and that night Crawford, Taylor, and Downs, and other men slipped quietly up to McGuire's shack in the rear of his blacksmith shop, placed the dynamite beneath the floor of the house, touched the glowing end of a cigar to the fuse, and ran away. A moment later, the shack dissolved into debris and dust. McGuire's mangled body was found by a group of telephone construction men shortly afterward, He was still alive when found. He made a dying statement that Downs and Gott killed me. Stonebarger admitted that a large majority of the people of Los Alamos had knowledge of incidents leading up to the killing, but none of them were willing to talk.
1: Now something does come up in this trial, and it took me a bunch of, like, I had to kind of go down the rabbit hole in a bunch of these articles, too many to read, but it talks about KKK involvement. And the way the article read, I, I was like, what is going on here Was Was McGuire in the KKK? I was like, well, that's not going to be a good look for this hermit if he was. No. But he wasn't. He wasn't.
2: Nor were the people involved on the other side.
1: Right. Right. I thought, "Well, were the murders involved in the KKK? Was this like a KKK conspiracy to get this blacksmith? No. No, they, they weren't either. Apparently, what happened was the KKK heard about this murder and basically came to these guys and it was almost like a protection scheme. And they said, you're going to want to join up with the KKK and, you know, we'll take care of you. We'll take care of this. And they didn't. And that's when the KKK started trouble. And lighting fires in the town. Lighting crosses and stuff. Basically, I guess, trying to intimidate these guys or something for not essentially paying protection money.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like, like yeah, a like a mob kind of
1: thing. So it's weird. And you hear, you know, the KKK come up a lot. At one point, the actual prosecutor the DA or somebody is actually put on stand in the trial to ask why he asked one of these guys, maybe Stonebarger was the, basically he was, he was being grilled for asking this guy if he was a member of the KKK. It didn't even make sense why that would figure into things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was all like, like, why did you ask this? And why, you know, it was really odd. Like I didn't,
2: uh, I didn't know that the KKK acted in that particular way.
1: I think, you know, I mean if I mean, you're doing a power grab or something, you know, at this time they were pretty active, I think all over the country. Mm-hmm. And I think they were maybe trying to weave themselves into different things, you mm-hmm. know, and, and get get important people hooked into the KKK and so forth. So
2: My question is, I mean, this is purely specula- speculative, but it, was there a possibility that because they're sort of involved in this Underground world, kind of like the mob. That maybe there is some truth to the idea that there was some rum running, and um, they kind of wanted to get their hands on that aspect of it.
1: Oh, there could have been. There absolutely. I mean, there was huge money in that.
2: Yeah, is this during Prohibition? Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, it's, it's odd that just like, and then out of nowhere, the KKK shows up, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, as if it's... as if it couldn't get weirder. Yeah.
1: But I was happy to learn that our hermit was. Was he was not involved not involved
2: actually happy to learn even that the bad guys were not involved yeah in it. exactly
1: That's the trial starts on July 8th 1924 so i guess the trial goes the way that so many of these these small town
2: justice works
1: yeah so this article is from A little bit later in the month, the trial's been going on for a while. This is
2: from, what's the date in the paper? July 23rd, 1924. From the Los Angeles Times again? Yep. And the headline is, Convictions Not Expected. Belief Express Dynamite Jury Will Disagree. Acquittal of Taylor Downs Anticipated.
1: Surprise, surprise.
2: The McGuire murder trial will not go to jury before Thursday morning. It was believed at the courthouse early today. When it... Assistant District Attorney Westwick opened the arguments for the prosecution. Westwick's argument beginning early this morning was not ended tonight, and following his lengthy statement, it is expected Joseph Ford for the defense will begin an argument of similar length. Characterizing the slaying of McGuire at Los Olivos in December last as the most dastardly crime in the history of the country, the prosecution spent most of the morning outlining the possible arguments of the defense's. Westwick stated that every possible attempt had been made by the defense to drag the name of the Ku Klux Klan into the investigation, but that the accused were not being tried on any matter connected with the investigation in an alleged third degree, but were being heard on the charge of murder only. No amount of abuse heaped upon the office of the district attorney will purge the black hearts of the defendants, nor purge their dirty souls, said the assistant prosecutor, and we ask for a verdict of murder in the first degree." The matter of the participation of W.W. W. Kemp, known to be a Klan legal, in connection with the investigation following the killing of the aged blacksmith by a heavy dynamite bomb, was gone into it and was asked why the defense had stopped Kemp's appearance on the stand if he had subjected the defendants to inhuman treatment as had been claimed. Though the defense had not opened its argument late tonight, the belief about the courtroom was to the effect that Taylor Downs, the oldest of the trio on trial, will be acquitted, and that the jury will not be able to reach a verdict on William Downs, his son, W. H. Crawford.
1: I'm just going back to this other article with this photo of Taylor Downs. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he was a KKK guy, but I mean he looks like a KKK guy.
2: Oh, I see the guy on the right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm tra- not trying to like. You know. <laughs> yeah,
1: he looks like, like. Okay,
2: so just imagine in your mind what a you know. Like you've got one of them, and you just rip the hood off. This is the guy you see, <laughs> yeah. right? He has that like quintessential like um, KFC kind of um, every Confederate
1: beard. general reenactor, like
2: <laughs> yeah, every Confederate general. Every
1: Confederate general.
2: <laughs> I don't know if they just get their hair cut at the same place that styles the little white beard into that yeah. into that shape, but. It wouldn't be a big leap if we found out later he was a member of the KKK. He just didn't really want to talk about being involved for the purposes of uh, the trial.
1: Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? We don't know. I'm just saying. Who knows?
2: He's just a murderer. He's not a member of the KKK. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's he's just a murderer. I know. Sometimes people think I'm being flippant about that, you know, or laughing, and it's I'm, I'm not laughing about the situation. I'm laughing about the ridiculousness of what's happening. So right,
1: yeah, and surprise. They're acquitted.
2: I don't even understand how that's possible. I know. This is the next day after that article. So, jury acquits trio accused of killing McGuire. W.F. Crawford, W.T. Downs, and W.H. Downs were found not guilty in the murder of J.J. J. McGuire of Los Alamos tonight. The jury reported at 3.50 o'clock after four hours of deliberation. So, I don't know if the sticking point was the fact that they insisted on first-degree murder charge and because they couldn't come up with and agreeance on that, or the fact that we've looked at some of the people who made the cut as jurors, and some of them had the same last name as the people. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they were related, but they were definitely members of their town who already had some idea of what the situation was going in, and probably a little bit of bias. If It I was a show
1: trial. Yeah. It was a show
2: trial. I do think it's funny how often we run into these, like, this is the most important trial ever. Oh, yeah. This is yeah, the this- trial of the century. Yeah. And then it's like Fatty Arbuckle, and people are like, I don't even remember who Fatty Arbuckle was. How could that possibly be the trial of the century? This was certainly one of the biggest things to hit Los Alamos before Neverland Ranch.
1: One of the articles I found that was just so typical of this whole event, and then I I didn't clip it. The thing about searching these newspaper articles, anytime you find something that even might be slightly related to anything you're interested in, you should clip it because
2: when you go to find it again, it won't be there. Yeah. And the we, fairies take it and move it. I'm this is one time Josh is absolutely right. The <laughs> fairies take articles that you're looking for and they move them somewhere else. We looked all day for this particular article and I couldn't find it. We found fi- we found
1: one article that sort of mentioned it, but there was an, an article that really detailed it. So the town has a big barbecue to celebrate the acquittal, acquittal of these guys.
2: Is that not tacky? It's a little tacky, I think.
1: Even more tacky than that, they invited McGuire's son to come to it. Oh. Right?
2: Yeah, that's
1: they invited his like son It's like they're
2: rubbing they're rubbing the family's nose in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. His son it said, you know, his son declined to come, but they were talking about how these like oil barons from nearby towns were coming over.
2: Yeah, cattle ranchers it, with lots of land. It,
1: yeah, all. so It sounds like the big celebration of like, yeah, we game the legal system, you know, let's celebrate it.
2: I'm sure they were looking for the real killers the whole time. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think, I don't know, should we call this episode Justice for JJ?
2: I do have an article called Acquitted Men Given Cordial Welcome. That details the barbecue if you want to read it.
1: Oh, that might be the one.
2: Acquitted Men Given Cordial Welcome Home.
1: Maybe this is the article I was talking about. What's this from?
2: Um, this is from the Los Angeles Times on July 26th. So they've already had time to plan a barbecue. Yeah, They've just been acquitted. It's almost as if they knew it was happening. It, it takes longer than this amount of, like, they were acquitted faster than it would take to actually organize a huge barbecue. Uh, a
3: barbecue, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> a community barbecue and general celebration will be held at Los Alvos to mark the acquittal of W.F. Crawford, Taylor Downs, and William Downs of the charge of murdering J.J. J. McGuire, who was also a resident of the valley town. The trio were freed last night at 9 o'clock, and a wild demonstration took place in the courtroom. News of the verdict was telephoned to their hometown, and when the three men and their immediate families drew up in the main street in motor cars, they were received with a deliriously happy reception committee, made up of everyone in the community who could walk or be carried to the spot. All day today, the Downs General Store and Post Office have been crowded with visitors and friends, and plans for the barbecue were made late this afternoon.
1: No, that's not the article I was thinking of, but oh, that, okay. that does mention it, yeah. But th- no, the article I found was, I guess, written about the barbecue, so it was written, like, after. And it was talking about how they had invited McGuire's son and all these rich folks. What a great time. Yeah.
2: We'll just sit around and gloat about murdering a defenseless old man by blowing him up. Justice for McGuire. I'm calling it. <laughs> I think that's part of the reason that uh, these stories are so intriguing is like, if there's some way to write the wrong, I mean, there isn't, there isn't any way to write the wrong, but I don't know. It's yeah. a,
1: it, I honestly feel like we discovered a real conspiracy with this. Now, there's nothing we can do about it. These people are long gone, but I do feel like this is a legitimate conspiracy we uncovered and this poor guy. This poor guy was killed because, basically, he crossed the wrong people in the wrong town. Hey, Allison. Yeah? Where can I find 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy?
2: Oh, I know this one. Sithappens.us.
1: Such a great name. Such a great (laughs) Sithappens. What can 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy help me with for training my puppy?
2: I know this as well. If your puppy has potty training issues, fear or nervousness, barking, chewing on furniture or shoes, crate training issues, hyperactivity issues, leash training, mouthing and biting. All of these can be addressed by 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. That's Maybe. right.
1: They have a relationship-based training that helps you and your puppy become perfect for each other. You see, it's not about rolled up newspaper and hitting a puppy on the nose. That's old school. It's not the way they do it.
2: Hel- Building a relationship together.
1: Absolutely. They help you and your puppy become perfect for each other with their online sources, video lessons, secret Facebook groups, and, of course, one-on-one options are available as well. Again, you can find them at SitHappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Let 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy help you understand how your dog thinks, because it's not how you think, Allison. And apply proactive <laughs> training methods so you and your puppy can become perfect for each other. Again, it's at SitHappens.us. Look for that 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page.
2: So one of the misconceptions about tin types is that they were called that because people thought that they were made on tin instead of iron, which they really are. But the name really came about because you need tin snips to cut them. And if they're on a big plate and you're cutting down the plate... To make smaller tin types, you need tin snips. Okay, and that's why they're called tin types.
1: But they're actually ferro types.
2: Yeah, they're actually made out of iron.
1: Very thin pressed iron. Is that why we're doing it? Because blacksmiths tin- would probably. Because the black. Because we don't have any photos of blacksmiths.
2: That'd be awesome. I think I would keep them if I had them. I like the all the allusions to like the, him being sort of like a devilish kind of character because he works with with uh, yeah, he works with fire. Well, I mean,
1: you know, we we talked about this in the blacksmith episode. Blacksmiths are feared, you know, all over the world. They're always like suspected to be like witches or. You I know, mean, it's almost like powers and stuff.
2: You know, like and it's not alchemy, but you are you are molding things with fire, and there's, yeah. there's like a yeah. lot of interesting symbolism I, there. I
1: think that's the the whole cold iron thing too. You know, the, the, why fairies were afraid of cold iron worked by the hands of craftsmen.
2: So here is a, a little thin piece of cold iron worked by the hands of photographers
1: <laughs> and it's not a stereotype for the first time in i, mean, I don't know how many weeks or, yeah it's not a stereo view for the first time in how many weeks many many weeks
2: he's just like the kind of the quintessential old-timey guy
1: yeah he could have been involved in that murder
2: yeah i mean this is like maybe 40 years on this could have been this could have been one of the down's guys when he was younger
1: yeah yeah he could have crawled under the shack mm-hmm. so for our curiosity of the week we have a tin type photograph of a fella
2: in a hat, sealed in a carte de visite size holder. Yeah,
1: we've talked about this before. Just, I really like the way tintypes look. Like they just have a certain look to them. They're it. moody. Yeah. yeah,
2: they're really moody. They have a, a a darkness to them. Yeah.
1: So that will be our curiosity of the week. If you go to the show notes under this episode, and you should see an image of this photo. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and other curiosities of the week. While you're on Etsy, make sure to check out all of our other offerings. Our shop name is Lost Grave. If you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. I've got artwork there, both originals and prints. Got my books. If you get them from Etsy, they come signed, including the Witch Cloud that's there. Got some of my music, t shirts, patches, stickers, and a lot more. Again, the shop name is Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. And while you're on Etsy, Chad has a shop there called Ruck Rabbit Outdoors. He's got some new offerings coming. He's always got uh, vintage wool and hatchets and knives and all that kind of stuff. So check out Chad's shop and also check out our friends at Karmic Garden. I didn't have a photo. I couldn't find a photo of McGuire, the blacksmith. I looked, but I I couldn't find any photos of him anywhere.
2: Yeah, we, we might have found him in the... That might have been the J.J. J. McGuire in the... In the
1: jail records?
2: Yeah, it might have been.
1: Maybe, but uh, I couldn't find any that specifically said, you know, this is the Hermit McGuire or anything like that.
2: Mm-hmm. He is not buried in the same cemetery as the other men, which I was pleased to see. It bothers me when people have to spend eternity with like either like a neighbor that tormented them or someone that murdered them or...
1: Right. You know. But I am working on a book about hermits. I've been working on it for a while, but I, I've kind of turn the corner on it and I know what it's going to look like and, and I have an ideas for it and I'm sort of assembling it. It's still going to be a while, but Hermit Book is coming.
2: On that note, can I also ask if there's anybody that lives near East Saginaw, Michigan to contact me because I might need some help with some research there? Sure. If anybody like would have time to go to cemeteries around there and take a picture for me?
1: East Saginaw, Michigan. If we have any listeners, get in touch. Okay. podcast at gmail.com. I'll make sure the message gets to Allison. I'm also getting ready to compile my next historical Bigfoot book. It's been a while since I put one of those out. I did Bigfoot in Pennsylvania and Bigfoot West Coast Wildman. What do you think I'm doing next, Allison?
2: Bigfoot Iowa.
1: (laughs) I'm doing Bigfoot East Coast Wildman. I'm going to do the entire East Coast. I think it'll all fit in one book. It's going to be a thick book. Is this like
2: when he's doing the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, pretty much. You start in March in the south, right? And you go north. Is
1: that how he did it? Yeah, I'm not sure how I'm going to organize, probably alphabetically by state on the east coast. Mm-hmm. The problem after that is most states don't have enough to have their own book like Pennsylvania did. Mm-hmm. I'm having trouble figuring out how to break up the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Where does the south end and the southwest begin?
2: Maybe just do it all time zone based. That might work. <laughs>
1: That might work, although I've already done—
2: Because you're never going to get people to agree where the South ends and who's in the Midwest. That's that's an argument. Like, are we in the Mid-Atlantic or are we in the North? Like, are we—
1: We're in the North Mid-Atlantic.
2: Yeah. We're the Keystone.
1: We are the Keystone. Yeah, that might work, although I've already done, like, some of the Pacific time zone.
2: But you haven't done California. I did
1: California in the West Coast book. Oh, okay. I did California, Oregon, and West Coast. I read all that.
2: <laughs> Yeah, time
1: zones might work. I don't know. Well, some states are split in two by time zones. Oh,
2: that's true. And some don't observe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know because it's like, yeah, where does the South end and the Southwest begin? Where does the Midwest begin and end? What's Northwest versus West West? It's hard to break up the rest of the country. So I'm going to do the East Coast. Ohio might get its own book. Beyond that, I'm going to, I don't know how I'm going to break it all up. It's going to be difficult. Might have to just take groups of three states or something and mm-hmm. just,
2: you know. The rest of the United States? Just like, what if you can, you just put it in one thick volume and like everything else? Because because it's slimmer. I mean, like I imagine that Iowa and South Dakota are a little less dense than, say, yeah, Ohio I'm, and New Jersey. I or, might
1: be able to do that. I might be able to do that. <laughs> Bigfoot, the rest of the country. <laughs> I have to come up with a clever name for it. In any case, i got another historical Bigfoot book I'm compiling right now. Got to figure out you know, which articles go in, and I got to write the commentary for it and stuff. But uh, there are more historical Bigfoot books coming. And Josh and I are in talks about doing a, not a third volume of Where the Footprints End, but a sort of addendum volume. I don't want to kind of give away what it's going to be, but a sort of a, you know, related volume to Where the Footprints End.
2: Is going to be very heavy? No. Oh, it's I mean, all Bigfoot.
1: No heavier than than uh, the other ones the other two books were. No, it it's related to where the footprints end. It it would be, you know, in that vein and you know, we'll probably carry that title, but it's not a volume 3. To call it a volume 3 would not be correct. So this is just sort of a, a an addendum kind of volume that we're working on or we're we're at least in the beginning stages of talking about working on. It, so
2: Will it be addressed why fairies do wear boots?
1: That is uh maybe Josh's next book. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So uh, lots of literary projects coming up. Well, I definitely have more besides that. I'm been working on this Flannelman book forever. It's just a really difficult book to write. There's a lot to it, and
2: we want to do right by Flannelman.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I've I've not given up on that. It's it's definitely in process. But I think that the next couple books should be another historical Bigfoot book and this Hermit's book. I'm not sure in what order, but I'm working hard on those and. Working hard on the podcast as well. Got some one-site episodes coming up. Chad and I went out to Site 7, so patrons will get to hear that. I just listened to it last night. There's some weird sounds that I got on that, so patrons will be able to hear everything. I captured everything I could pull out on that. That will be the first patron show for April. April. My (laughs) goodness, we're in April. And then the second one, I'm going to make you watch another movie, I think, Allison, for the second one.
2: I'm actually really excited about that. I really liked Boggy Creek, like way beyond what I ever thought I would, so.
1: That should be fun. You want to hear those episodes and you want to help support Strange Familiars, the best way to do that is to become a patron, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We have almost 90 patron episodes right now. I think by the time this month's patron episodes come out, we will have 90 or 91 You get all of those episodes when you sign up, and then every month you get two more patron episodes, exclusive full episodes of Strange Familiars we do for our patrons. Again, it's patreon.com slash Familiars. You can check out all the levels of support there. We have yearly options for support. We have monthly options. No matter which tier of support you choose, you get those extra episodes of Strange Familiars, and you help us support the show. And, of course, I want to thank our patrons so much because we couldn't do Strange Familiars without you. Again, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. That's all for this episode of Strange Familiars. We'll be back soon with more. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music books, art, podcast, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. And we're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word. And you can find us on the web at www.strangefamiliars.com.